Book Seven, Chapter Three of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Seven, Chapter Three. Defection of Olid, Dreadful March to Honduras, Execution of Guatemothin, Doña Marina, Arrival at Honduras. In the last chapter, we have seen that Cristóbal de Olid was sent by Cortés to plant a colony in Honduras. The expedition was attended with consequences which had not been foreseen. Made giddy by the possession of power, Olid, when he had reached his place of destination, determined to assert an independent jurisdiction for himself. His distance from Mexico, he flattered himself, might enable him to do so with impunity. He misunderstood the character of Cortés, when he supposed that any distance would be great enough to shield a rebel from his vengeance. It was long before the general received tidings of Olid's defection, but no sooner was he satisfied of this than he dispatched to Honduras a trusty captain and kinsman, Francisco de las Casas, with directions to arrest his disobedient officer. Las Casas was wrecked on the coast and fell into Olid's hands, but eventually succeeded in raising an insurrection in the settlement, seized the person of Olid, and beheaded that unhappy delinquent in the market-place of Naco. Of these proceedings Cortés learnt only what related to the shipwreck of his lieutenant. He saw all the mischievous consequences that must arise from Olid's example, especially if his defection were to go unpunished. He determined to take the affair into his own hands, and to lead an expedition in person to Honduras. He would thus, moreover, be enabled to ascertain from personal inspection the resources of the country, which were reputed great on the score of mineral wealth, and would perhaps detect the point of communication between the great oceans, which had so long eluded the efforts of the Spanish discoverers. He was still further urged to this step by the uncomfortable position in which he had found himself of late in the capital. Several functionaries had recently been sent from the mother country for the ostensible purpose of administering the colonial revenues, but they served as spies on the general's conduct, caused him many petty annoyances, and sent back to court the most malicious reports of his purposes and proceedings. Cortés, in short, now that he was made governor-general of the country, had less real power than when he held no legal commission at all. The Spanish force which he took with him did not probably exceed a hundred horse and forty or perhaps fifty foot, to which were added about three thousand Indian auxiliaries. Among them were Guatemothin and the Cacique of Tacuba, with a few others of highest rank, whose consideration with their countrymen would make them an obvious nucleus round which disaffection might gather. The general's personal retinue consisted of several pages, young men of good family, and among them Montejo, the future conqueror of Yucatan, a butler and steward, 
several musicians, dancers, jugglers, and buffoons, showing, it might seem, more of the effeminacy of the oriental satrap than the hardy valour of a Spanish cavalier. Yet the imputation of effeminacy is sufficiently disproved by the terrible march which he accomplished. On the 12th of October, 1524, Cortés commenced his march. As he descended the sides of the Cordilleras, he was met by many of his old companions in arms, who greeted their commander with a hearty welcome, and some of them left their estates to join the expedition. He halted in the province of Coatzalcoalco until he could receive intelligence respecting his route from the natives of Tabasco. They furnished him with a map exhibiting the principal places whither the Indian traders who wandered over these wild regions were in the habit of resorting. With the aid of this map, a compass, and such guides as from time to time he could pick up on his journey, he proposed to traverse that broad and level tract which forms the base of Yucatan, and spreads from the Coatzalcoalco River to the head of the Gulf of Honduras. I shall give your majesty, he begins his celebrated letter to the emperor, describing this expedition, an account, as usual, of the most remarkable events of my journey, every one of which might form the subject of a separate narration. Cortes did not exaggerate. The beginning of the march lay across a low and marshy level, intersected by numerous little streams, which form the headwaters of the Rio de Tabasco, and of the other rivers that discharged themselves to the north into the Mexican Gulf. The smaller streams they forded or passed in canoes, suffering their horses to swim across as they held them by the bridle. Rivers of more formidable size they crossed on floating bridges. It gives one some idea of the difficulties they had to encounter in this way, when it is stated that the Spaniards were obliged to construct no less than fifty of these bridges in a distance of less than a hundred miles. One of them was more than nine hundred paces in length. Their troubles were much augmented by the difficulty of obtaining subsistence, as the natives frequently set fire to the villages on their approach leaving to the wayworn adventurers only a pile of smoking ruins. The first considerable place which they reached was Ithtapan, pleasantly situated in the midst of a fruitful region, on the banks of the tributaries of the Rio de Tabasco. Such was the extremity to which the Spaniards had already, in the course of a few weeks, been reduced by hunger and fatigue, that the sight of a village in these dreary solitudes was welcomed by his followers, says Cortes, with a shout of joy that was echoed back from all the surrounding woods. The army was now at no great distance from the ancient city of Palenque, the subject of so much speculation in our time. The village of Las Tres Cruces, indeed, situated between twenty and thirty miles from Palenque, is said still to commemorate the passage of the conquerors by the existence of three crosses which they left there. Yet no allusion is made to the ancient capital. Was it then the abode of a populous and flourishing community, such as once occupied it, to judge from the extent and magnificence of its remains? Or was it, even then, a heap of mouldering ruins, buried in a wilderness of vegetation, and thus hidden from the knowledge of the surrounding country? If the former, the silence of Cortes is not easy to be explained. 
On quitting Iztapan, the Spaniards struck across a country having the same character of a low and marshy soil, chequered by occasional patches of cultivation, and covered with forests of cedar and Brazil wood, which seemed absolutely interminable. The overhanging foliage threw so deep a shade that, as Cortes says, the soldiers could not see where to set their feet. To add to their perplexity, their guides deserted them, and when they climbed to the summits of the tallest trees, they could see only the same cheerless, interminable line of waving woods. The compass and the map furnished the only clue to extricate them from this gloomy labyrinth, and Cortes and his officers, among whom was the constant Sandoval, spreading out their chart on the ground, anxiously studied the probable direction of their route. Their scanty supplies, meanwhile, had entirely failed them, and they appeased the cravings of appetite by such roots as they dug out of the earth, or by nuts and berries that grew wild in the woods. Numbers fell sick, and many of the Indians sank by the way, and died of absolute starvation. When at length the troops emerged from these dismal forests, their path was crossed by a river of great depth, and far wider than any which they had hitherto traversed. The soldiers, disheartened, broke out into murmurs against their leader, who was plunging them deeper and deeper in a boundless wilderness, where they must lay their bones. It was in vain that Cortes encouraged them to construct a floating bridge, which might take them to the opposite bank of the river. It seemed a work of appalling magnitude, to which their wasted strength was unequal. He was more successful in his appeal to the Indian auxiliaries, till his own men, put to shame by the ready obedience of the latter, engaged in the work with a hearty good will, which enabled them, although ready to drop from fatigue, to accomplish it at the end of four days. It was indeed the only expedient by which they could hope to extricate themselves from their perilous situation. The bridge consisted of one thousand pieces of timber, each the thickness of a man's body, and full sixty feet long. When we consider that the timber was all standing in the forest at the commencement of the labour, it must be admitted to have been an achievement worthy of the Spaniards. The arrival of the army on the opposite bank of the river involved them in new difficulties. The ground was so soft and saturated with water that the horses floundered up to their girths, and sometimes plunging into quagmires were nearly buried in the mud. It was with the greatest difficulty that they could be extricated by covering the wet soil with the foliage and the boughs of trees, when a stream of water, which forced its way through the heart of the morass, furnished the jaded animals with the means of effecting their escape by swimming. As the Spaniards emerged from these slimy depths, they came on a broad and rising ground, which by its cultivated fields, teeming with maize, aggie, or pepper of the country, and the yucca plant, intimated their approach to the capital of the fruitful province of Aculan. It was the beginning of Lent, 1525, a period memorable for an event of which I shall give the particulars from the narrative of Cortes. The general at this place was informed by one of the Indian converts in his train that a conspiracy had been set on foot by Guatemotin with the cacique of Tacuba 
and some other of the principal Indian nobles, to massacre the Spaniards. They would seize the moment when the army should be entangled in the passage of some defile, or some frightful morass, like that from which it had just escaped, where, taken at disadvantage, it could be easily overpowered by the superior number of the Mexicans. After the slaughter of the troops, the Indians would continue their march to Honduras, and cut off the Spanish settlements there. Their success would lead to a rising in the capital and throughout the land, until every Spaniard should be exterminated, and vessels in the port be seized, and secured from carrying the tidings across the waters. No sooner had Cortés learnt the particulars of this formidable plot, than he arrested Guatemotin, and the principal Aztec lords in his train. The latter admitted the fact of the conspiracy, but alleged that it had been planned by Guatemotin, and that they had refused to come into it. Guatemotin and the chief of Tacuba neither admitted nor denied the truth of the accusation, but maintained a dogged silence. Such is the statement of Cortés. Bernal Díaz, however, who was present at the expedition, assures us that both Guatemotin and the cacique of Tacuba avowed their innocence. They had indeed, they said, talked more than once together of the sufferings that they were then enduring, and had said that death was preferable to seeing so many of their poor followers dying daily around them. They admitted also that a project for rising on the Spaniards had been discussed by some of the Aztecs, but Guatemotin had discouraged it from the first, and no scheme of the kind could have been put into execution without his knowledge and consent. These protestations did not avail the unfortunate princes, and Cortés, having satisfied, or affected to satisfy, himself of their guilt, ordered them to immediate execution. When brought to the fatal tree, Guatemotin displayed the intrepid spirit worthy of his better days. I knew what it was, said he, to trust to your false promises, Malinche. I knew that you had destined me to this fate, since I did not fall by my own hand when you entered my city of Tenochtitlan. Why do you slay me so unjustly? God will demand it of you. The cacique of Tacuba, protesting his innocence, declared that he desired no better lot than to die by the side of his lord. The unfortunate princes, with one or more inferior nobles, for the number is uncertain, were then executed by being hung from the huge branches of a saiba tree, which overshadowed the road. In reviewing the circumstances of Guatemotin's death, one cannot attach much weight to the charge of conspiracy brought against him that the Indians, brooding over their wrongs and present sufferings, should have sometimes talked of revenge, would not be surprising. But that any chimerical scheme of an insurrection, like that above mentioned, should have been set on foot, or even sanctioned by Guatemotin, is altogether improbable. That prince's explanation of the affair, as given by Diaz, is, to say the least, quite as deserving of credit as the accusation of the Indian informer. The defect of testimony and the distance of time make it difficult for us at the present day to decide the question. We have a surer criterion of the truth in the opinion of those who were eyewitnesses of the transaction. It is given in the words of the old chronicler, so often quoted. The execution of Guatemotin, says Diaz, 
was most unjust, and was thought wrong by all of us. The most probable explanation of the affair seems to be that Guatemothin was a troublesome, and indeed formidable, captive. Thus much is intimated by Cortés himself in his letter to the Emperor. The Spaniards, during the first years after the conquest, lived in constant apprehension of a rising of the Aztecs. This is evident from numerous passages in the writings of the time. It was under the same apprehension that Cortés consented to embarrass himself with his royal captive on this dreary expedition. The forlorn condition of the Spaniards on the present march, which exposed them to any sudden assault from their wily Indian vassals, increased the suspicions of Cortés. Thus predisposed to think ill of Guatemothin, the general lent a ready ear to the first accusation against him. Charges were converted into proofs, and condemnation followed close upon the charges. By a single blow he proposed to rid himself and the state for ever of a dangerous enemy. Had he but consulted his own honour and his good name, Guatemothin's head should have been the last on which he should have suffered an injury to fall. It was not long after the sad scene of Guatemothin's execution that the wearied troops entered the head-town of the great province of Aculan, a thriving community of traders, who carried on a profitable traffic with the furthest quarters of Central America. Cortés notices in general terms the excellence and beauty of the buildings, and the hospitable reception which he experienced from the inhabitants. After renewing their strength in these comfortable quarters, the Spaniards left the capital of Aculan, the name of which is to be found on no map, and held on their toilsome way in the direction of what is now called the Lake of Peten. It was then the property of an emigrant tribe of the hardy Maya family, and their capital stood on an island in the lake, with its houses and lofty teocadis glistening in the sun, says Bernal Diaz, so that it might be seen for the distance of two leagues. These edifices, built by one of the races of Yucatan, displayed, doubtless, the same peculiarities of construction as the remains still to be seen in that remarkable peninsula. But whatever may have been their architectural merits, they are disposed of in a brief sentence by the conquerors. The inhabitants of the island showed a friendly spirit, and a docility unlike the warlike temper of their countrymen of Yucatan. They willingly listened to the Spanish missionaries who accompanied the expedition, as they expounded the Christian doctrine through the intervention of Marina. The Indian interpreter was present throughout this long march, the last in which she remained at the side of Cortes. As this, too, is the last occasion on which she will appear in these pages, I will mention, before parting with her, an interesting circumstance that occurred when the army was traversing the province of Coatzacoalco. This, it may be remembered, was the native country of Marina, where her infamous mother sold her, when a child, to some foreign traders, in order to secure her inheritance to a younger brother. Cortés halted for some days at this place, to hold a conference with the surrounding caciques on matters of government and religion. Among those summoned to this meeting was Marina's mother, who came attended by her son. 
no sooner did they make their appearance than all were struck with the great resemblance of the cacique to her daughter. The two parties recognized each other, though they had not met since their separation. The mother, greatly terrified, fancied that she had been decoyed into a snare in order to punish her inhuman conduct. But Marina instantly ran up to her and endeavoured to allay her fears, assuring her that she should receive no harm, and, addressing the bystanders, said that she was sure her mother knew not what she did when she sold her to the traders, and that she forgave her. Then, tenderly embracing her unnatural parent, she gave her such jewels and other little ornaments as she wore about her own person, to win back, as it would seem, her lost affection. Marina added that she felt much happier than before, now that she had been instructed in the Christian faith, and given up the bloody worship of the Aztecs. In the course of the expedition to Honduras, Cortes gave Marina away to a Castilian knight, Don Juan Jamarillo, to whom she was wedded as his lawful wife. She had estates assigned to her in her native province, where she probably passed the remainder of her days. From this time the name of Marina disappears from the page of history, but it has been always held in grateful remembrance by the Spaniards for the important aid which she gave them in effecting the conquest, and by the natives for the kindness and sympathy which she showed them in their misfortunes. By the conqueror Marina left one son, Don Martin Cortes. He rose to high consideration, and was made a commendador of the order of St. Iago. He was subsequently suspected of treasonable designs against the government, and neither his parents' extraordinary services nor his own deserts could protect him from a cruel persecution, and in 1568 the son of Hernando Cortes was shamefully subjected to the torture in the very capital which his father had acquired for the Castilian crown. At length the shattered train drew near the Golfo Dolce at the head of the Bay of Honduras. Their route could not have been far from the site of Copan, the celebrated city, whose architectural ruins have furnished such noble illustrations for the pencil of Catherwood. But the Spaniards passed on in silence. Nor indeed can we wonder that, at this stage of the enterprise, they should have passed on without heeding the vicinity of a city in the wilderness, though it were as glorious as the capital of Zenobia, for they were arrived almost within view of the Spanish settlements, the object of their long and wearisome pilgrimage. The place which they were now approaching was Naco, or San Gil de Buena Vista, a Spanish settlement on the Golfo Dolce. Cortes advanced cautiously, prepared to fall on the town by surprise. He had held on his way with the undeviating step of the North American Indian, who, traversing morass and mountain and the most intricate forests, guided by the instinct of revenge, presses straight towards the mark, and, when he has reached it, springs at once on his unsuspecting victim. Before Cortes made his assault, his scouts fortunately fell in with some of the inhabitants of the place, from whom they received tidings of the death of Olid, and of the re-establishment of his own authority. Cortes, therefore, entered the place like a friend, and was cordially welcomed by his countrymen, 
greatly astonished, says Diaz, by the presence among them of the general so renowned throughout these countries. The colony was at this time sorely suffering from famine, and to such extremity was it soon reduced, that the troops would probably have found a grave in the very spot to which they had looked forward as the goal of their labours, but for the seasonable arrival of a vessel with supplies from Cuba. After he had restored the strength and spirits of his men, the indefatigable commander prepared for a new expedition, the object of which was to explore and to reduce the extensive province of Nicaragua. One may well feel astonished at the adventurous spirit of the man, who, unsubdued by the terrible sufferings of his recent march, should so soon be prepared for another enterprise equally appalling. It is difficult in this age of sober sense to conceive the character of a Castilian cavalier of the sixteenth century, a true counterpart of which it would not have been easy to find in any other nation, even at that time, or anywhere, indeed, save in those tales of chivalry, which, however wild and extravagant they may seem, were much more true to character than to situation. The mere excitement of exploring the strange and unknown was a sufficient compensation to the Spanish adventurer for all his toils and trials. Yet Cortes, though filled with this spirit, proposed nobler ends to himself than those of the mere vulgar adventurer. In the expedition to Nicaragua he designed, as he had done in that to Honduras, to ascertain the resources of the country in general, and above all, the existence of any means of communication between the great oceans on its borders. If none such existed, it would at least establish this fact, the knowledge of which, to borrow his own language, was scarcely less important. The general proposed to himself the further object of enlarging the colonial empire of Castile, the conquest of Mexico was but the commencement of a series of conquests. To the warrior who had achieved this, nothing seemed impracticable, and scarcely would anything have been so had he been properly sustained. But from these dreams of ambition, Cortes was suddenly aroused by such tidings as convinced him that his absence from Mexico was already too far prolonged, and that he must return without delay if he would save the capital or the country. End of Book 7 Chapter 3